This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. They argued that they needed indeterminate sentences so they could hold the women as long as they wanted to. Two hundred years ago, women were often housed in the same prisons as men, but that changed in 1873 when two Quaker reformers, Sarah Smith and Rhoda Coffin, opened the first public women's prison in the United States, what would later become known as the Indiana Women's Prison. It turns out, history has a lot to tell us about the current state of women's incarceration. Today, around 172,000 women are incarcerated in the United States. Although they make up less than 10% of the total jail and prison population, women's incarceration rates have grown at twice the pace of men's in the last few decades. I'm a, I'm a person who's interested in origin stories. How in the, uh, did we get here? We've got to go back to the very, very beginning. Today, Charlotte West, an education journalist with Open Campus, will take us inside the Indiana Women's Prison History Project and look at the question, what happens when women rewrite the history of their own prison. Charlotte sat down with Elizabeth Nelson, Anastasia Schmid, and Michelle Danielle Jones to talk about their new book, Who Would Believe a Prisoner? Coming out in April from the New Press. After 20 years in prison, Michelle came home in 2017 and is now a PhD student at New York University. And Anastasia was released in 2019 after a federal court overturned her conviction. After finishing a graduate program in medical humanities, she now works as an independent scholar. The book has been more than a decade in the making, starting out in 2012 as a history class taught at the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. The book with chapters written by 10 incarcerated or formerly incarcerated women and contributions by dozens more challenges many of the things that historians thought they knew about the first public prison for women in the United States. The book touches on topics like the horrific conditions the women were subjected to, medical abuse, and forced labor. It's really unusual for this kind of research to be done in prison. The research team had unique access to the prison's archives, but all of their work was done without the internet or an actual library. Instead, all of their requests for books, articles, other materials were fielded by outside people working with the project. The research team also had to fight for their own legitimacy as scholars because they were often written off simply because they were prisoners. But special things happen when women write the history of prison where they're incarcerated. This is an incredible conversation, an amazing book. Thank you very much to Charlotte, Elizabeth, Anastasia, and Michelle for taking the time to record this. So I'm Elizabeth Nelson. I am a historian. I am on the faculty at IUPUI, which is Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. I started work with the Indiana Women's Prison History Project in January of 2018. And the project had already been, you know, uh, in full swing for several years by that point. Kelsey Kaufman, who uh, was the a previous coordinator invited me to kind of come in and fill her role because she was left uh, Indiana to go to, to California. So my role has been kind of multiple. I, I just kind of, I called myself a coordinator, but I've been, you know, I started working with the students on the inside, um, you know, developing their uh, their research, getting them connected to our archival uh, materials. Um, you know, mentoring them about interpreting the documents and writing. And that role has kind of grown to a kind of more administrative or coordinating role. Um, shepherding the book through it's, it's, uh, it's process. Yeah. Just working with connector between folks who are, were on the outside and on the inside. Um, and trying to keep the whole thing <laughs> coherent as coherent as possible. 
Yeah, and there's a lot more I could say, but I think I'll, I'll stop there for now. Yeah, my name is Anastasia Schmid. I'm an independent scholar, artist, and activist. I'm one of the founding members of the Indiana Women's History Project. Uh, kind of my areas of specialty are uh, medicalization of women's bodies, 19th century medicine, gynecology, obstetrics, sex work, uh, gender and sexuality issues, mental health, epistemic injustice and violence, um, and trauma. I'm Michelle Daniel Jones. I am a doctoral student at NYU. I come to this project from incarceration. My, my, for this particular project, I wrote three chapters, four chapters. And, and most importantly, I'm particularly proud of the methodology section, which I wrote, which kind of um, lays out our particular way in which we approach the archive as incarcerated um, students and incarcerated who, ha- who use their lens of incarceration as a way in which to approach the archive. Talk a little bit about how this project was initially embedded within a prison education program. And I know this was around the time that the Indiana State Legislature pulled state financial aid for incarcerated students. And so I know that there was a lot of different colleges coming in. And so if you could talk just a little bit about maybe situating this in that larger context of, of prison education and sort of what what you all were experiencing. Cal came in and took out higher education because program in the 90s. Indiana made a commitment to con- continue HEP and funded it out of state funds using the FOSFA in order to determine eligibility until 2012, when that funding was pulled um, out from us quite suddenly, quite traumatically. And then um, Kelsey Kaufman, uh, being a a professor at DePaul, heard about what was happening here and decided to come in and offer a sort of grassroots higher education and prison program that was working with a local university, Martin University initially, um, and later with Holy Cross, um, to get people to uh, credential completion. And in the process of that, being a historian herself, one of the things she wanted to do was create an original history project. And the history project was designed to last the semester, um, two at the max, to develop some sort of pamphlet about the history on the Indiana Women's Prison being the first private prison, public, sorry, public prison for women in the United States. Of course, it ended up being much more in-depth and interesting, primarily because we found it interesting. And we began to, um, you know, uh, the program, the program was an outgrowth of that college program that was sort of grassroots and running to kind of fill a gap once the funding was taken. I mean, so at the beginning, there you had no intention of this being a ten-year-long project that would culminate with, no, man, with the book. No, no, and and nobody did. I mean, it was going to be a pamphlet at most. Actually, once I began to think it was not realistic for us to complete a pamphlet by the time the second semester rolled in, and we were at some people were at the very beginning of really doing a deep dive into their subject matter, and there were more people coming on the project who were interested. So. It outlived its couple semesters quite quickly. Quite quickly, it wasn't. A, I didn't get a feeling at all at the end of the second semester that we were at a wrap. You know, more conferences were being proposed, opportunities to publish were being offered. Um, there was no way at the end of two semesters we thought this would end. Um, Anastasia, was there anything you wanted to add to the sort of prison ed context? You know, I think Michelle does a great job of kind of summing up how we transitioned into this and um, started the project and started doing it. And, you know, as she said, and this is part of the methodology, what makes the work different is we're incarcerated people situated in the very institution we were researching. So, I mean, it was interesting to us because this is the history of our institution, but Yeah, I mean, the original idea was we were going to make this nice little feel-good pamphlet that was really going to expound upon the current history about the place on these great Quaker moral reformer women and all the great stuff they did for women. And once those of us, especially those of us who were part of the project who had served long sentences at that point in time, started looking through the documents, um, from the prison records themselves, we started noticing disparities in it and realizing that there was no way things could have been that much better 150 years earlier than what our current experience was. 
And I think, you know, the fact that we saw these disparities and we saw these red flags in there based on our own experience, we all started to lay down kind of our personal theories on what we really thought was happening. And that was met with kind of a little bit of skepticism and dissent in the beginning. You know, surely we could we were being ludicrous in the things that we thought, you know, so there was a little bit of pushback in the beginning. Because what we were proposing uh, to be the truth was so far out of the reach of what previous historians had said about the institution, the people who ran it. So I think a lot of that was our own individual personal discoveries and our own personal theories on what was really happening that also kind of fueled the project forward and continued it to go on. I mean, one of the things I want to ask you about, and I noticed that Michelle wrote about this in the introduction, like you guys were able to do this project because it was a quote unquote safe topic to research. You were Mm -hmm. research, you were looking into the past. You weren't researching your current living conditions. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, because this was in the past, it it made it sort of a safe area to to research. But then I like, obviously in the book, you are able to draw some parallels to um, current conditions in, in women's prisons. I think the first point of it being safe was administrators and people knew the current history that was out there about the institution. And it was a very soft, feel good kind of story, you know, like these women had done great things rescuing uh, female prisoners from male institutions, you know, so they didn't really see any threat in us doing it to begin with because everything everybody knew uh, was lauding what had happened then. Um, And I think that had a lot to do with it. And that, you know, we were focusing on documents and things that happened, you know, well over a hundred years earlier. So there really was no kind of red flag in the beginning. I mean, I don't think administrators nor educators nor anyone else was taking into consideration the fact that we're people in that very circumstance looking at this and what our current realities might have been. Right. And I think the superintendent and all those, they were interested in reading what we produced, right? Um, They seemed to have an interest. I remember Mr. McCauley um, wanting to read the publications, and as long as he felt that distance, he didn't feel threatened by it. No Department of Correction would have allowed us to do that kind of analysis of, of the institution we were living in because we were being critical of the Department of Corrections and the system of incarceration and um, and how it uh, treated incarcerated women and girls. We weren't, once we got into it and we started publishing our, our you know, Obviously, we're not telling the full feel-good story of the year. And so I felt like Mr. McCauley in particular felt a certain degree of comfort, number one, with Kelsey being the elderly white academic from Harvard and Yale being in charge of the program because she could be the person who offered some guardrails. For example, when we took uh, uh, Professor Marlon Bailey's class on race and sexuality, one of the one of the books that we had to read was The History of Black Pornography. And Kelsey brought those $60 books or had someone buy those $60 books for us in that class and sat down quite diligently and cut out every piece of black nudity in the entire book and gave us a shred of itself in order to do that class. And so she was willing to police our experience in the classroom as a safeguard to make sure that the project continued. And Mr. McCauley rested in that confidence with her as a, as a person so that the program could survive. She policed she policed our access and, and also policed our purview. Um, we did interviews where they had to be redone because we said things that were too um, critical of our current uh, prison health care and, uh, and those in leadership of that. And so there was always that policing kind of always present. And because of that, I think Macaulay felt comfortable with that. Plus, I think he also was interested in the work. I found talking to him about the history of Rhoda and Sarah, he seemed genuinely interested in learning new information. And he also felt good that he had almost a 200-year distance from it, right? So he could confidently, he could confidently without concern participate. So there was multiple layers of policing happening there. And of course, we self-policed our situation because we wanted to continue to have access to the computer labs and 
uh, conferences and things like that. And so in the small ways that we made sure that we could continue to maintain the program, we did that as well. And if everybody wasn't doing that, none of the body, if no one was doing that, there would have been no problem, period. And yeah, I, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Um, I just, I just wanted to add really quickly that, um, and I, I don't know if I have a point exactly, but I, I just an observation, or, and it's a question that I've had actually, which is, you know, the, the fact that we were doing history and removed, you know, uh, 150 years in the past, I don't think in itself what like is the answer to why it was considered safe. There are plenty of, you know, reactionary forces around the country that recognize that history matters and how it's told matters and are trying to, you know, suppress certain narratives. And so why this one was able to kind of slip through is in a way mysterious to me. I think the the contingencies and the exact, you know, kind of personalities involved and uh you know and also I think what Anastasia was saying about you know the kind of received wisdom about the prison as this um benevolent you know, reform, um, maybe kind of helped kind of paper that over. But I don't, I don't like the narrative that just like, well, history is, is safe. Um, and that's why the DOC, uh, allowed it. Um, I don't know if it was a blind spot that they had or, or what, because what we, you know, have is quite radical and quite critical. Um, and so, yeah, that's it. They would they would think it's safe because overwhelmingly these are people who don't read. You have to understand the culture of the facility of people that we're talking about. These are people who find history not something really living in their current life in any kind mm-hmm. of way. They're policing safety and security. They want to make sure that what's happening in the facility today is the thing that should be happening in the facility today. They I felt like. Most of those people who supervised us in the education building were clueless about the work and role of history. Most of those administrators were clueless about the work and the role and the power of history. They just did not have that part of their operating uh, consciousness. And, yeah, that's why it slipped through. Prisoners don't write no books. Is that what they say? Prisoners don't write books. I mean, there's an automatic disqualification about the capacity of incarcerated people, and that's where they start. I, I, I'd like to just put this point of speculation out there. IWP, from its very inception, has been thought of and known and believed to be this progressive institution. That is part of the legacy that even in modern times and in the time that Michelle and I were there, that's one of the things you heard all the time. We, we were so progressive in what we were doing in that prison. We were doing things in that women's prison that no other prison was doing and definitely no other women's prison was doing. So I think when this really first started to blossom into something beyond what everyone thought, and then we started getting attention of other scholars and other historians and people wanted to do interviews and then a graduate professors wanted to come in and offer us graduate level classes. This was one more notch in the belt to be like, see how progressive we are. See what we're doing in this institution. See what we're allowing our women to do here. You know, it becomes uh, another point that you can laud. Uh, the purported story that education for prisoners is rehabilitation. You know, so it's carrying on this 150 year old legacy of we're going to rehabilitate these women with what what we're doing. So 19th century, they were going to rehabilitate them with religion and domestic duties. Well, now we're going to rehabilitate people through education. So, you know, it's one good old pat on the back of the institution that, oh, my goodness, we have female prisoners that are going to take a graduate class. Isn't that amazing? Look what we can do. You know, so. Um, I just think there's a lot of different pieces and parts and components that um, factor into how and why this happened and how it evolved the way it did. Yeah, I don't think it's one dimensional at all, because every every single person in that program, from the administrators to the volunteers, brought bring with them their particular viewpoints of how they view incarcerated people, incarcerated women, what's their reach, what's their capacity, what 
what can they actually do in that space? And I'm, I'm telling you, in my personal opinion, I believe a lot of them saw our purview and length and stretch and capacity to be limited and cute that we could do these things. And isn't that awesome? And, and thumbs up without that ability to look at it as the critical counter narrative, radical intervention that it is. Hence the title of the book, Who Would Believe a Prisoner? Nobody ever expected anyone to actually take us seriously. You know, we were maybe supposed to be the horse, pig, and pony show with what we were doing, but we were not supposed to be legitimate, serious scholars doing legitimate work and really changing the narrative. And exactly as Michelle's saying, we're not supposed to be critical thinkers. And so it's non-threatening in and of itself the fact of who we are and the views that administrators, society in general, other people have about incarcerated people and particularly incarcerated women who are nearly silenced across the board in these narratives. There is teeny tiny pieces and parts historically or contemporarily um, about women in prison and what what's going on in the lives with women. I mean, it's a long line of women being silenced and things being hidden or not taken seriously, or it's in a side note somewhere. Uh, the focus is pretty much always men and situations with um, what's going on in men's prisons and, and those kind of things. So all of these and, things. And that's why the volunteers were so important, right? That's why the faculty mm-hmm. and the volunteers were so important, because a lot of them came in and treated us like people who had something important to say. And without the faculty, without the volunteers, a volunteer a PhD students coming in, working with us, you know, um, building that confidence to speak under that front of being under the thumb, um, you know, that's why the community, the, that community mattered. That's why the community mattered so much, because they helped mm-hmm. actually strengthen our own ability to say, we got something to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is a, yeah, it's a, it, there's a kind of, you know, exploitation of, I said blind spot already, but like, a, a, you know, like where you all were not seen as, yeah, as, as, as capable, as contenders, as, you know, and so because they weren't looking over there, then there was a chance for you all to do something, which, is, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, there, so it's actually, Michelle, that the quote you had, offenders don't write books, like I said, that was actually something I was going to ask you about. Um, I know Kelsey mentioned that in the introduction that, or the essay that she wrote in the introduction. Um, she, I think she'd come back in like 2017 to meet with former students. And then someone at the central office had her escorted out because, quote unquote, offenders don't write books. And then she wrote in that moment, the prison history project was transformed from one that was openly celebrated and facilitated by the prison system to one that was constantly threatened with being shut down. So was there a period when the sort of access and like resources that you had changed? And was that about the time that you came in, Elizabeth? That was about the time that I came in and my general (laughs) approach to doing the work inside the prison um, and it's changed depending on kind of who's in charge. The administration changes, the mood changes, you know, the rules change all the time. But like in general, my I was just kind of like keeping my head down. And when people ask what I was doing, I'm I'm just teaching a history class and, you know, just really not trying to draw any attention to it because I, you know, like there was this kind of. There, there were times where we did have to act like when we did the I think it was the book contract where we had to, you know, ask permission for for folks to be publishing and they came back with this ridiculous um, response which was okay um, these authors can publish but they can't mention the women's like the name of the Indiana women's prison in their publications and it's just like you know what and so basically (laughs) the, the plan was just to ignore it you know um, thankfully, the administration has changed and there's, you know, there's more kind of uh, understanding and acceptance that this is happening. I shouldn't be surprised, but just to be clear, they wanted you to publish something about the history of the Indiana Women's Prison without mentioning the name Indiana Women's Prison. They would allow us. Oh. Not, right. 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 Yeah. They, they I, I think they, they, they think they thought you could write this history without like 
naming the facility that the that the authors were at or what the you know and I think that was the thing that they didn't want the like the link the authors to that are and, and yeah and there's this kind of um just absolutely incoherent thing because on the one hand they're claiming the work and celebrating it when it suits them and then absolutely bowing it with the other hand at the very same time and so with all that you know i just try to keep you know a low profile and and yeah. just keep keep moving forward you know he's a co-conspirator that's what he's called <laughs> That's what it's called. Be a, that's what it is. That's what it means to be an ally in a carceral setting that recognizes the personhood and the dignity of incarcerated people. You have to be a co-conspirator. System want that, right? Here's 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 a perfect example. I don't know if you know this, but weekly the Department of Correction puts out a bulletin. It is the DOC bulletin. It's the news weekly newsletter circulated or circulated around the entire Department of Correction. Year after year, like we were doing these cool shit, right? We're meeting with these people. We're having people. We're doing visiting scholars. We got, you know, famous people on the call. Never is any of the things coming out of the History Project ever a part of that weekly bulletin. Ever. Because, right? Because this is something on the level of uh, something they seem to really be beyond the capacity of an incarcerated person. And they would have to acknowledge that we've got some very bright capacity. They'd have to make some acknowledgement about our personhood. What they would rather show is like when we, when we get our in the bulletin, get in the bulletin, it's because we've made some quilts for the homeless shelter, or we've made some, um, season G Coleman pillows. We've done, we've done crafts. We've uh, made mosquito nets. We got in those bulletins for those things where we are like in service, right? But anything about intellectual capacity? No. No. So not a lot has changed since 1873. No, not at all. And I think that's the no. whole point of our book. That, that's the whole point of what we're writing. It's, it's completely the same. And again, just, just the fact that Michelle mentions these amazing things that we're doing academically, intellectually, and you never even mention it in your bulletins. Years from now, those bulletins are still going to exist. And that complete part is erased. So this is how we mold and formulate history and erase valuable, deep pieces of history. And, you know, one of the core points we've made through all of this is that is a key to oppression. Is that silencing and the hiding and the twisting and tweaking and, you know, exalting certain areas and completely ignoring others? You know, anything that's going to put DOC or the administration or uh, the system itself in a good light. Well, we're going to highlight that and we're going to talk about that. But anything that's going to show us as real life human beings that are at the exact same capacity as any other human being anywhere else in the world, we have to erase that completely because the entire system. Right. Cause it's true. to something happening within us as opposed to something they've allowed to happen in us. For example, if we make quotes for soldiers and sailor homes, it's because the community outreach department gave us materials and baddies to make things. And, and, and isn't it great to see prisoners in service? Right. But the writing, the research is something that they can't attribute to anything they have done as an institution. It can't be attributed to them in the same way that me making some quilts can be. It's very, it's very, it's quite intentional. I mean, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your I know you mentioned methodology early on, and I know the term you're using is embodied observer. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how this is different than traditional um, historical scholarship. Um, and I know, Anastasia, I think you had mentioned, um, sort of some of the uh, skepticism about, skepticism about your skepticism, I guess, and sort of pushback from maybe Dr. Kaufman and others about, um, you know, why are you coming to this conclusion? And then if you, if you could both talk a little bit about that interplay as well. Yeah. I think, um, we, we had an amazing, um, faculty member come in and give us a, a methodology sports. And reading about what is ethnography, what is participant observation, you know, um, how are we doing analysis? And I remember, you know, looking at that thinking it doesn't fit exactly what we're doing, right? 
because over and over, Anastasia and, and a lot of the other ladies kept centering their own lived experience in a way to help the classroom explain the research that they were sharing with us. Anastasia very repeatedly centered her own lived experience when she began to explain what she was finding in the archive. And I was like, nothing really captures that in traditional ethnography or traditional methodology. So it began to sit with me more and more that we needed to come up with something that kind of ex- kind of fit our geographic location of being incarcerated, doing, uh, doing research at, at a high level. And that's what the embodied observer is about. It's about the captive body. And it's designed to unearth subjugated knowledges that, you know, Foucault and others have talked about that is typically suppressed in stories and narratives and histories of institutions, right? Telling the story of, of the asylum, telling the story of the hospital, telling the story of the prison, telling the story of the mental institution. The people is often inside those institutions are often suppressed. And so I felt like coming up with something like the embodied observer starts with like the physical location of the body. And then the observer is traditional, the pieces and parts of traditional ethnography where we are taking our, our particular perspectives and look at the lens because there's no research that is truly objective. Throw that shit out the window. It doesn't happen. Um, everybody's approaching the archive with some thoughts and ideas about it. And then just really just owning that, that our way in which we are observing the archive is valid, even in this captive experience. So that's where that kind of comes from. And Anastasia, I wonder if you wanted to talk specifically about, um, I think it was Dr. Parvin, who you were initially very, very skeptical of, that you sort of had to to make a case for, for the story that you really wanted to tell. Right around the same time that I enter into the history project, I had finally obtained my own court documents and records. I was indeed used as a human guinea pig in the very beginning of this. Uh, eventually, this is exactly why I won on a wrongful conviction. I was put in a state known as chemical restraint with an extreme and potentially lethal amount of psychotropic medication. I had already gone through this arduous process of looking through my own records that had been withheld from me for, at that point in time, 13 years worth of time. Seeing the holes and the disparities within my own records and documents so that When I come to the history project and I start looking at the document and specifically the medical things in the document, immediate red flag. And the day that Kelsey came in and told me, oh, my goodness, it's so amazing. You'll never believe what we found. Dr. Parvin was president of the AMA and right when he worked at the women's prison. And I was I was just blown away. I'm like, why in the hell would the president of the AMA choose to work? At the only public women's prison in the country, there'd never been one before. Oh, wait, he was an expert in gynecology and obstetrics. Hello. He was experimenting on those women. And oh, you know, come on, that's ludicrous. So far fetched on and on and on. And there really was a day Kelsey and I were toe to toe. I mean, practically in a screaming match with each other. And she's adamant that I'm like a conspiracy theorist and I'm going way out in left field. And she's in my face. And finally, how do you know? How do you know? You're so adamant, you know, how do you know? And I finally just had to look at her and say, Kelsey, I know because I am one of those women. They have done it to me in the 21st century. So you cannot fucking tell me that in the 19th century, This asshole who attained the level of president of the AMA did not see the most opportune space and place to come carve up and poke and prod and do whatever the hell he wanted to do to these women. They're still doing this shit to us now. There's no other real viable legitimate reason a man of that stature, even in that day, would just volunteer to come here and do this out of the goodness and kindness of his heart. Bullshit. I call bullshit. Calling bullshit meant we had to go and prove it, right? So yeah. she does, right? She makes uh, Kelsey go back to the archive. And this was one of the biggest things about the methodology thing that we talked about, is that we would say, this this ain't right, this ain't matching up, go back and go back and go back. And then eventually, by insisting that our point of view had some merit, eventually, um, the uh, the postdoc that was working with us, Matt Galasso, 
and um, Kelsey and Monique Howell, thank you, um, at the Inano State Archives, began to pull out the threads, pull out the little pieces. And man, it would be one little article here, a little snippet there, but it, it substantiated some of the, the arguments that we were making. And then suddenly, you know, now we have a new narrative that we can write about and talk about that is not a part of the, the, the typical history of Indiana. In fact, if you look at the current, one of the, my main arguments and, 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 and points of frustration with Indiana historians is that they typically didn't capture or record anything about the first prison for women in the United States in this state at all, at all. They didn't talk about women in, women's incarceration at all. And so you're like, <laughs> so you're like the, the, the leaders of the Indiana historians are not even capturing this. So then we realize we've got something. We've got some, we've got some stories to tell. I mean, um, I have to say that one of the sentences that stood out to me in your chapter, Anastasia, was this chapter reveals the stories not told about Dr. Parvin. Like that just sort of summed up not only your chapter, but also like the whole book, right? It's the stories not told about the history of women's incarceration in Indiana and the U.S. Yeah, that's right. Um, One of the other things that stuck out to me was sort of, you know, when you think about sort of the content itself, um, you're you're telling this broader history through individual women's stories. Can you talk a little bit about the choice to I mean, and every chapter almost has a name, right? You're really telling these these stories. So can you talk a little bit about the um, why you decided to sort of structure it like that? Yeah, I think that was intentional because the women who were doing this project writing, um, Laura, Anna, everybody was on this project, but Zone zeroed in on the women because as Anna's already said, she saw the herself in them, right? And I zeroed in on the administrators, um, because I was into, I'm a, I'm a person who's interested in origin stories. How in the, uh, did we get here? Oh, we've got to go back to the very, very beginning. And so the story of these prison benevolent reformers, benevolent in quotes, um, gave me that I needed to understand how they got to where they were so that the, so I could have a greater understanding of uh, a, a greater, a deeper understanding of what they created. And so I was interested in like studying Sarah and Rhoda, these women, how did they get here? How did they get in this position of power? And then what was the philosophy undergirding their, their use and, and abuse of power, right? Um, but we were all interested in the women. Um, writ large and the, and the women who were in these institutions, the girls who were in these institutions and the women who were in control of these institutions. We really wanted to narrow in the broad spectrum of women's power or, or, or works of creating powerlessness, right? So that's why chapters, we originally like, okay, let's, let's do a geography. Let's go Jefferson, Indiana. Let's go, you know, Richmond, Indiana. Let's focus that way and then there was another consideration of like oh let's focus just on institutions let's organize it by institutions but as the project went along we found that people were more interested in telling the story of the women and the women rose to the top of those early analysis that were oriented in different ways that's what's missing is the women no even when i was reading through I mean, hordes and hordes and hordes of journal articles and notes of Dr. Parvin and his textbooks and all this other stuff. The fact that we are missing names of these people. I mean, you know, one of the points I've made in several of the articles I've written, the only time Dr. Parvin would name a woman by her name and her full name is when it was an African-American woman. No other woman do we see a full name of. We might get an initial. We may get some minor uh, descriptive demographics, uh, their their age or where they were from or whatever. But we don't name these women. It's like we're erasing such a core fundamental of someone's personhood, their very name. You know, it, it's just um, we talk about these people uh, more like they're just nameless, faceless entities rather than full people and autonomous people and all of these other things. So and, you know, th- that's exactly it. I mean, myself, probably every other woman in this project, somewhere along the lines of the research, we found one of these women in history whose story so closely paralleled our own experience, how could we not? 
how could we not highlight the women themselves in their stories? Oh no, that yeah, that I, that's that covers where where I was going to try to go. So yeah, that's perfect. I mean, I think one of the other things that stood out in terms of sort of you know the sort of some of the unique contributions of this book to the history of women's prisons. I think you found out in the course of your research that not only was the Indiana Women's Prison was supposed to be the first prison, but there were all sorts of prison women's prisons that were in existence before that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you sort of came across that and then how you dove into that a little bit further in terms of maybe even the logistics of the research. I'm telling you, okay, so we we oriented the class in these things called meta discussions, right? So people would bring in uh, primary resources would be shared amongst the group and people would be sent back to their dorms to read and then as they found different things that piqued their interest, they would bring it back and have, have open forum discussion, right? And one of the things that we learned about in, in, in the search for the 1881 investigation and what happened to the people there when that first came out, one of the things that we also got a little piece of is this little tiny article that said that the Magdalene Laundries in the 1960s was closing a prison for women that they had opened up in, you know, right shortly before the, in 1873, right before the prison, the main prison that we studied opened up. And we're sitting here going, what? Right? Okay. Cause we've had this battle going on in the classroom. Like, where are the prostitutes? There was argument that people who were charged with larceny or petite larceny, grand larceny were actually people who had charges of prostitution, but we found that prostitution was actually a charge on the books. And we're reading the chronicles that say that there are prostitutes everywhere. So this hunt for the prostitutes. <laughs> It's true. The hunt for the sex worker. Where are the hoes? Where are the hoes? <laughs> Where are the hoes? Took these people, our our support archivists, back to their back to the archives, and they come up with this under, with this little piece of sliver of an article that proves that there was another prison, and that women went there. And then we studied an entire. We went on another. Uh, uh, my potatoes are almost done. We went on another jaunt to study what the Magdalene Laundries, which revealed that they operated and were sanctioned by the state of Indiana to incarcerate women for sex work. And so then we're like, that's where they all are. But that discovery shifted our focus tremendously because now we have these other institutions that were incarcerating women all at the same time. The, both homes for friendless women, multiple Magdalene Laundries, and then the private public prison, well, it was originally private, but the original public prison for women in the United States, right? And they're all happening in the 1870s, right after the Civil War. It just blew the thing wide open. Now we now we know for sure that there's a major gap in history that has not been told, that we now have, um, we now have the floor to tell. Well, it also, you know, placed the project in, in like in, in into new spaces and conversations, you know, like thinking about all the work that's been done in Ireland about, you know, yeah. uh, uh, uncovering the histories, but also, you know, uh, you know, you know, repairing or doing reparations for some of the injustices that were done there. And then work that's being done in Canada and Australia and all these other places around the world on these. Uh, private religious run, um, homes for quote unquote fallen women. And so that, that piece, you know, placed the story and it, it like on a different scale and, and brought, yeah, just brought a whole new dimension to, to the work. Um, which, you know, the whole thing, like when I think about all, like all the things that the book contains, um, it's, you know, it's daunting, you know, and, and trying to, caught up on all of those conversations and historiography and, you know, um, connecting with scholars, you know, all over the place. Just exciting stuff. Like the book would have already been badass if it would just focus on IWP, but then there's all of that too, you know. But what I like, what, what you brought to the project when you came along is that you were able to get access to the Catholic archives um, in ways that we were not able to. And when Elizabeth brought in like the mother load, she approached them as the historian extraordinaire from IU and I need access to these archives and they gave them to her. And I just about, we just about lost our mind because suddenly now we've got the gold mine of what happened 
a way which we understand the Magdalene Laundries as the first private prisons in the United States. The Indian Women's Prison is the first public prison for women in the United States. And just to uncover all of that, the same type of abuse, the same type of subjugation based on religion and sex, the same type of gendered violence and physical violence, we see this happening for women and girls um, in both institutions. And we're able to tell a parallel narrative of subjugated knowledge is both from the Protestant so-called uh, uh, Quaker side, Christian side of the, of the map to the, the Catholic um, side, side as well. And it came out because we did have some articles that kind of like, oh, yeah, this is this is likely happening. But when Elizabeth came on the project, she actually was able to go and get all of the stuff. And when all the stuff came, we um, there was a whole team of ladies who really kind of latched on to that. Some of them because that's their religious history and they were interested in digging into their own background. Again, our personal perspectives, our personal orientation to the archive, our embodied positionality helped shape what we will do, what, what interests us to study and do a deeper dive in. And, and having that piece uh, of what happened in the Catholic religion and the cat in these Catholic wrong Magdalene laundries really helped us understand what was happening at the turn of the century for all women and girls who came in contact with any of these carceral institutions. Now we're telling a bigger story. I mean, and I think the other piece that sort of really resonated was, you know, your chapter on economics, where we have this home we need. It's expensive to operate. Um, we don't we need to get more people in here. So it's not as expensive to operate. And then we can even make money off of their unpaid labor. I mean, it's it's the prison. It's sort of the birth of the prison industrial complex too. Well, that that's we see that in in, in Michelle's work. I think some of Kim Baldwin's work, yeah, uh, Ray yeah, and Kelly's yeah. work on you know. Um, so yeah, as you're saying, Michelle, like you see, even like the public, private, whatever you know, there are important distinctions to be made. But when you see those same kind of strategies of yeah you know, exploitation. You know, recapitulated here, 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 here. It's it's uh, pretty striking, you know. Yeah. And what what lessons or what takeaways do you want people to get from the book about not only the history of women's prisons but also sort of the current that the current state of mass incarceration of women today? Women in crisis, be it from sexual abuse, trauma in the home, um, living in precarity, or poor, can't afford proper legal uh, 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 representation. The remedy has been historically is that to help these women, they need to be incarcerated. And we're pushing back against that narrative that women in trauma and crisis do not need to be incarcerated to be helped. But from the very first prison, they argued that they needed indeterminate sentences so they could hold the women as long as they wanted to till they decided a woman was good enough to go home. That kind of mentality has fed into the way corrections operates even today. We have to play with this, this game of merit when women are incarcerated largely due to crisis and trauma. Crisis and trauma. And the, re and the remedy for us has been incarceration. And that's a problem from the very beginning. And I'll pass the mic. Absolutely everything Michelle just said. Complete truth. Completely agree with it. Would say that myself too. But I think what I want to say is that prisons are not about, never have been about or for what they claim to be for. This has absolutely nothing to do with crime and punishment. It is an interconnected system of power, oppression, social control, all of these things so far beyond the scope of what people historically and even contemporarily are led to believe it's about. So rehabilitation, I mean, that word gets under my skin probably worse than any other word because it is such a fallacy. It wasn't about that in the beginning, and it sure the hell isn't about that now. So unless we start looking at the big picture and the interconnections of power that factor into this and what it's really doing and what it's really about, you're never going to end mass incarceration. There is no you cannot say you can't reform this. OK, I think that's my biggest thing. There is no reformation for something that is in 
inherently nefarious. This is inherently nefarious. We are not going to fix it. There is no real solution other than dismantling and looking at the bigger picture as to the multitude of reasons that bring a human being to that point to begin with, particularly Mm -hmm. women. And as Michelle just said, predominantly, I mean, I'm going to go as far as to say about 99% of every woman I met in all of those years of incarceration had a long history of crisis and trauma that led up to it. Systemic failure at every single angle prior to the prison. All of us, all of us. I mean, at one point in time, I became a peer facilitator and that is what I do, what I was doing. I was working with women every single day in multiple levels, working through their stuff. How are we going to heal from this stuff that got us to this point? And it was just the same story, same story over and over and over again. And it didn't matter what their charge was. So the Mm -hmm. crime as to why they were there became absolutely irrelevant. And another key point I found when I would listen to the totality of women's lives and their stories and what led them there, if we could have went in and plucked a man out of their story, they would never have been there to begin with. Somehow, some way, every single woman, no matter what the hell her charge was or what her sentence was, there was a male figure that played a key role in leading to her point of incarceration. I mean, what what do I want people to take away from this? Tear down human cages. Let's start responding to human beings and real human needs collectively. A system has been set up to keep people entrapped and to keep people in failure. We need people helping people at the core of what the real issues and the problems is. We need intervention. We need to become proactive instead of reactive. And the prison system is a reactive system to something that is not even actually the problem. Right. Incarceration has been proven not to work. And proven, proven not to work. In my 20 years of incarceration, you know how many women I saw come back? Prison wasn't making their lives better. And And the way in which prisons operate, they don't produce healthy, well-rounded individuals who know how to handle emotions, uh, relationships well, money well, that interconnectivity between people. They have huge issues and social skills and socialization. I mean, it actually produces people who have more work to do to make their lives right when they get out than when they went in. It's a failed system and it continues to fail us. And it has, and we, what this book shows is that it has been true from the beginning. That's, that's what our book tells us. The first prison in the United States. It's been true from the beginning. It's you never leave incarceration once you're there. You know, Michelle talks about this a lot in her work. Um, and we talk about collateral consequences. Uh, it doesn't matter that the purported crime I was convicted of happened 23 years ago. It doesn't matter that I was a wrongful conviction and I won a federal habeas corpus and I was released from prison before my sentence ended. It doesn't matter that I've now been home from prison for three and a half years, a law-abiding citizen. It doesn't matter that I had no prior criminal offenses before the offense that I went to prison for. To this day, I have now lived in one, two, three different states in this country. I cannot find the core basis of housing because I am discriminated against because of that felony conviction. None of that matters. You know, people, I can fill out an application for housing, everything. My credit's amazing. My work, my work is good. I have the money. Everything's perfect. The second they pull up something that happened 23 years ago, I'm sorry, we're not going to rent to you. Okay. So if I don't have a place to live and this is a key problem to people who have been incarcerated, you know, then the story is told on recidivism. Oh, well, they didn't want a good life. You know, they're they're just criminals. They always want to be criminals. They don't know how to do anything but be criminals. Well, when you have that, what I like to call the neo-scarlet letter of the felony on you, you can't find a place to live. You might not be able to find a job. You can't get public assistance. You can't go to school here. You're you're annihilated from 
all any and all aspects of what a human being needs to sustain their life. Basic needs are denied. So we never really leave prison. We're in prison every day. And, you know, Michelle, I forgive me, I can't remember the term you were using, like how the entire world becomes a carceral agent then. I think that was it, judging you and dictating what you do and don't have a right to. So, it, you know, once you've, got that, yeah, once you've got that brand, that's it. Everybody has some bureaucracy to deal with. If any, if you go, if any human being goes to the DMV and renews their license, there's a process. But for people who are impacted by mass incarceration, there is added layers from that, from health insurance, from seeing their doctor, their dental health, getting, getting medical insurance, from trying to uh, be a person who attends their children's PTA meetings, to have sleepovers at their house for the school, to just coach a fucking lead a little league team. I mean, the bureaucracy turns regular everyday people into carceral agents and they begin people who get to police us in perpetuity. And, and I want, and I want people to understand that this shit has been this, this problematic since 1873. Like we need to be willing to think outside the box about how to help people in crisis. And it doesn't include incarceration. Shit. It doesn't include incarceration. No, I mean, what, what incarceration did was put me in a perpetual state of crisis and trauma. I mean, right. One of the you things I talk about in my work now is I realized I have a whole new trauma disorder that didn't nobody even know existed because of incarceration. The very thing that brought me to that place, the place not only exacerbated, but caused a whole new problem now. So how are you ever supposed to escape it? But again, if we continue to only listen to the original dominant narratives about what the hell this shit is supposed to be and what it's about and who it's for and, and all the nonsense, we're not getting anywhere. It's actually pretty sickening to think that, you know, we claim America to be a free country, but we have more people incarcerated here than just about anywhere else on the planet. I mean, hello. Why is nobody really addressing that disparity? How in the free country do we have so many people locked up? And I guess the point I'm making here is you might have opened up that gate and let me out, but you really didn't. You really didn't. I mean, all of the shit that it encompasses is still the albatross around your neck. Day in and day out, with everyday people, everywhere you go, everywhere you turn. And I think the part of this just goes back to some of the, the, the comments from before about thinking about, you know, kind of who can take credit for a project like this, right? And so, you know, the tendency of, um, of prisons to, um, maybe want to claim this project or, or, or any kind of educational initiative as, oh, look at what we're doing or we're partnering with this university and we're educating, um, and rehabilitating people and, and, Part of my, I guess, frustration with that, and this is me coming kind of from a, like an educator perspective, is that it just re, well, first of all, it reinforces this idea that the prison is like, is doing something for, you know, incarcerated people, which is absolutely not. Um, and it displaces, you know, uh, credit where credit is due for, you know, the people that are going in as volunteers, as, as, you know, um, as, you know, networks of, 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 uh, allies and archivists and li librarians who are actually about the work. Um, you know, that's where the real credit should go, you know, uh, and of course to the scholars themselves. And so th there's a, I, I, I even, you know, have some problems sometimes thinking about the project we call it the Indiana Women's Prison History Project, but it almost, you know, uh, names the prison too prominently as, you know, this is, this is the, um, obviously it's like where this project happened, but it's not the, the foundation of, of the intellectual work that's happening. The, you know, and, and so I don't know. I have, I have so many, I have so many thoughts about this, you know, also thinking about, this as an educator, like to go from think, you know, teaching at, you know, IUPY and a certain kind of, you know, mechanized system, which is de designed to give, you know, 
credentials and degrees, um, which is all tied up with people's, you know, attempts to, you know, make it in the, you know, in the economy. All of that is, is absolutely important. We're um, all for programs that get, you know, that grant degrees that people can use, um, to get jobs or to get, you know, to other, you know, spaces of higher education. You know, there, there's these utilitarian things that we need to survive in this world. But one of the things that I think is the most exciting about this project is that it's not a degree granting program. It's not about a credential. It is about the work. We could, you know, even leaving aside, you know, the potential kind of transformative abolitionist implications of the work and what, you know, what might happen as a result. Just the fact of carving out an absolutely claiming space for women in particular to be researchers, to be knowers, to be authorities, to be storytellers, to be truth tellers, you know, aside from utility, just, you know, but just as a a way of being and asserting oneself, right? That to me is what education should be about. And it's all like it's just gets so muddied by all of these other, you know, concerns often. And again, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to say that, that those are not legitimate, you know, things we work. I want people to, you know, have, <laughs> have jobs or what, you know, but, um, but there's a, there is a kind of special thing about this project because it, it's not weighed down by that in the same way. Um, yeah. and there's a kind of, yeah, just a liberation of intellectual, striving and and community building speaking truth to power which is just for me as an educator like this is the kind of work that i feel you know like okay like this is worth it this this actually means something i love that elizabeth because yeah you're right everything doesn't need to be about a credential and at the end of the day would people be would the hunger be there to get this book to completion if it was only tied to whether we got a credential Mm-hmm. Right. It ain't tied to yeah. whether or not, you know, those weeks, those months, those years that we have all spent in this project yeah. and track people down, tracking things down, running things down. At the end of the day, it was the heart and the desire to tell these stories and tell yeah. our stories and tell these women's stories. That was the fire behind the project. And then also working with people who gave a damn. Right. At the end of the day, um, this would not have worked <laughs> if it was from some sort of clinical uh, a separate place of academia in the truest sense of the word. And yeah. I, I appreciate that because you need those places in your life where you can have right off the thought, think outside the box that are not hindered by more actions in the total institution, which mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the university is part of that. So, yeah, uh, yeah I yeah. appreciate you. And, you know, I think for me, and, and I've, said, I've said it over and over and over again in the years of my life, this is about making real change. I continued to fight against a wrongful conviction when everybody said I didn't have a snowball's chance in hell, wasn't going to win, wasn't going to be the blah, 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 blah. And I said over and over and over again, I will continue to do this and I will never stop because hopefully someday another woman will not go through what I went through because I'm going through this project. And I, and I felt the exact same way throughout the duration of this project and the writing this book. Michelle and I have written a play. We've written the book. We've written articles. We give these interviews. We go do these conferences. And for me, the point of doing that is so that another human being, particularly another woman, will never have to experience the trauma and the oppression and the silencing and the violence and the things that I have had to endure in my life. You know, it it isn't just about telling a story. It's about opening people's eyes to come to some semblance of real change, to ending now what has become centuries-long patterns of violence and oppression. How do we once and for all finally end harm against ourselves and against each other? Thanks again to Charlotte, Elizabeth, Anastasia, and Michelle for taking the time to do this interview. This program is produced by DBI Media, producer Kevin McCracken and Charlotte West. The full interview will be available on Open Campus Media 
and Dame Magazine. We'll have a link in our show notes. If you like our content, smash that follow button. DBI can be found on Patreon, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and our website, deathbyincarceration.com. Thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget, mass incarceration is a human rights issue, not a political one.